Welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast. My name is Trevor Bohm and I will be your host. Every week or so, I try to get myself a fascinating human on the mic for you, someone who looks at the civilized world just like you do and says no thank you. Someone who wants to break some rules, to lead, and to bring their unique vision into the world. Someone for whom the status quo simply will not do. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I do. Please dive in. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. This is Trevor Bohm, your host. And today I have a very heartfelt conversation, a very intimate conversation, a very difficult conversation with a woman named Allison Kerwin. Now I'm holding Allison's book in my hand. She just mailed it to me. It's called The Counselor, a powerful true story about addiction, grief, and love. Now Allison's gonna tell you the story of her brother, in his battle with addiction, one that ended up taking his life just a a few years back. And her story is actually sharing the story that often doesn't get told, the story of the family, the story of the friends, the story of the people who are left behind after addiction takes somebody, and the journey that they have to go on for their own healing and their own being okay in the world. As I said, I I hung up the phone with this one and and had to go for a long walk and just allow myself my own emotional experience. So take a couple deep breaths before you listen, really open your heart, really open your mind, and perhaps think of some different ways that we in the West here can approach addiction. And more importantly, we can approach the people, the humans who have brothers and sisters and loved ones and kids and parents, the people who are battling with addiction. Enjoy this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, Allison Kerwin. Allison, welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast. I appreciate you coming on. For people who haven't heard about you yet or don't know about you yet, would you mind, this is a very American question, but would you mind giving us a quick like minute rundown on who you are and what you do in the world? Hi. Um, yes, thanks very much for having me, first of all. My name is Allison Kerwin. I'm a marketing director by day but I'm a recently published author and have just released my first book, which is called The Counselor. Um, it's in memory of my brother who I tragically lost to um, drug addiction in 2019. Oh, wow. Okay. We will, we will get to that. How does one decide to, but first of all, tell me again what you do. It was, I, I missed the. I, I... I'm a marketing director. Oh, marketing so I... director. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. For those of you who, who are curious where your accent's from, where, where are you calling in from? I'm calling from England, so I'm based in Merseyside in the United Kingdom. Got you. For most of my audience is American, and so we have no idea about geography in general, and geography especially but, outside of the U.S. <laughs> I can imagine. I'm very close to Liverpool, if that helps. Beautiful. It's probably a little more well-known. Yeah, I'd say we just had a new uncivilized team pop up in Liverpool, so I'm excited to get out there and and visit at some point. Were you always a writer, or were were you a writer in your spare time or passionately, or or did the passing of your brother really spawn this? I guess I've I've always written. I would never have called myself a writer before I lost my brother. Writing's always been my go to ever since being a little girl journaling you know making up stories uh, it was always if I wanted to kind of process anything that was in my head I had to write it down mm. um 
but it was really losing my brother that my writing turned into a story and then a book that I felt I wanted to do something with. So it's probably that that's made me think of myself as a writer now. Yeah, it's so interesting. People who say, like, I've always written, but I never consider myself a writer. Uh, I was the same version. I remember telling my old business partner, I'm not a writer. I'm just a speaker who can type fast. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, you may want to look into that. Uh, tell me a bit about your brother. Tell me some of this story. Tell me about his life. Tell me about what ended up transpiring, if you would. Yeah, uh, well, my brother, well, I guess, first of all, he's my older brother. And I've grown up kind of idolizing him as I think a lot of sort of younger sisters do um he was charismatic funny football sport mad when he was younger grew up kind of training in in the UK a lot of um young boys train and end up in the local teams and then end up signing up for the teams and um and he did that for a while he was really into his sport um, that didn't transpire into a career for him. Um, he got really passionately involved in music, used to DJ, you know, really enjoyed that side of life, the clubbing side of life. And with that came drug use quite often. Yeah. But then got married, had a child. Um, but it was when his relationship really fell apart that drugs became less about having fun and more about coping with his emotions and uh, kind of managing the fallout of his marriage breakdown. So that that was a bit of a tipping point for a deterioration in his mental health and becoming reliant on drugs. And probably for the last 10 years of his life, it was very up and down and quite difficult for him. Wow. Yeah, here in the US, at least, it's eight out of 10 male suicides come after a breakup or a divorce. And so there's something very deeply within us as the male culture. And I imagine this is international that doesn't have the skill set to process emotion, may not have the permission societally to process emotion or to even experience emotion, and then has the proclivity to isolate and self-regulate or, you know, ignore rather than uh, reach out, you know, understand what's happening, realize there's another side of the coin. Can you tell us a little bit about early signs that you saw? Like, was it right after the divorce? Was it as the divorce was going on? Can you walk us through a little bit of that story? Yeah, I think all I seem to remember is him sleep, him beginning to sleep a lot. He he found being separated. He felt incredibly guilty from for walking away from his marriage. So that was one thing that weighed heavy on him. Um, he found it really difficult being away from his child, like really difficult. And he would, when he wasn't with his son, he would sleep a lot. Now we didn't realise at the time, but what he was doing was taking a variety of different drugs to kind of switch himself off in a sense for sure um, so, so that was kind of the first sign he wasn't really talking to us about how he was feeling obviously he was frustrated and upset but he didn't really talk in any level of detail he just tuned out from the world when he wasn't with his boy and then kind of bounced back up when he was with yeah. him again so that was kind of the first sign of 
things not being quite right with him, I suppose. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I remember when I was separated and was in therapy, and I'm not equating having a dog to having a child, but I, I remember telling my therapist that I was doing a two-week-on, two-week-off swap with my ex-wife and our dog, and the process I would go through of getting him back on a Monday and then being super high and elated and like, we're going to the park, we're going to the beach, we're doing all this stuff. And then the next Monday, knowing that I had to drop him off, uh, I would just start to get depressed and I would start to get anxious and I didn't want to have that meeting and I didn't want to have the let him go. And I shared this with my therapist who kind of just not like shook his head and said, I've been divorced for seven years now, and I go through that exact cycle seven day and a week on week off schedule when I get my son, and then I have to drop him off, and then that horrible depression of the empty house on day one. I think a lot of men really struggle with that. Would you say that? And I know I'm asking you to compare something you may not or may not know, but men in the UK specifically have a culture of keeping things to themselves or not sharing emotion and can you can you share a little bit about that with us yeah i think i think it's exactly that i think what you've just described would have been what my brother would have said about how he felt yeah i mean i I think things are changing now about sharing emotions but certainly you know back then it was over 10 years ago when um he first got divorced you didn't really he didn't really talk about it. He talked about he talked about missing his son mm-hmm. and finding that difficult, but you didn't really say that you were struggling with that and that you needed some help in some way. Um, and obviously, the fix that he would have liked would have been to be with his son twenty four hours every day. Sure, but that wasn't possible. So um, I think, yeah, culturally, things have changed quite a lot in the last 10 years. It's kind of hard to compare because it does feel a bit of a different world now, but certainly back then there wasn't that culture. And I think I think in the UK, the whole thing around the stiff upper lip and, mm-hmm. you know, we don't talk about things that are difficult. I think that's still, there is still an element of that there. And and certainly 10 years ago, that was, that was really rife that you didn't, you didn't admit that you found things difficult. And I think, for men, that's been a particular challenge. Yeah, the last five, you know, as much as social media is literally the devil, it has also done huge strides in just giving people access to information and access to other people who are sharing things that they feel that they may not have had access to a decade ago. I I believe that 100%. You know, five years ago, when I was getting divorced, uh, I looked for, this is crazy, I Googled, how do I survive my divorce? Because I'm a dude and I don't know what to do and I want someone to tell me what to do. And there was no good information. It was, I literally joined like three women's organizations because there was no men's organization or group of men who were speaking to this. And, and that's in the US. And now it is radically different. Uh, can you share a little bit more now of, of, okay, so he started sleeping more. When did this really come about as a, like a full-blown challenge, do you think? I think the first time, the first time I realized it was a real difficulty, I can't remember the exact year, but it was a couple of years, I think, after um, he'd left the relationship and I went to visit him and shortly after I went to visit him and he'd asked me wasn't in a good state of mind 
and he'd asked me to take him some yogurts with me when I went to visit and then he kind of rushed to get me out of the house and I didn't understand at all why he didn't want to have a conversation with me and why he was being so erratic and I sat in the car outside and just sort of had my head in my hands thinking something isn't right with him instinctively I knew something wasn't right and as I sat there and I don't know how long I've been there but it must have been a while um an ambulance zoomed past me down the road and I just instinctively knew that it was for him and he'd taken some medication and tried to end his life wow and I just got chills wow yeah so at that moment it was quite clear that this wasn't um that he was massively struggling yeah and that he just didn't know how to communicate that because I was right there I'd come to see him um yeah. And I was right there that he could have talked to and he, and he chose not to. So I guess that was the moment when you realise that this is, this is really serious. He's in a seriously bad place. Yeah. And perhaps it's not, it may not even be that he chose not to, but he literally didn't know how or he didn't feel that he could. I think one of the biggest lessons that I took away from divorce and that entire shitstorm of a period was what it actually means to be in crisis. Mm. No one had ever explained that to me before, and I didn't know it. I was lived a relatively, you know, privileged life and normal life up to that point. And it wasn't until maybe a year or two in when someone sat me down and said, your life is in crisis. Like, this is no different than your house being on fire or you having cancer. You have to look at things that seriously. And I was like, holy shit, I wish someone had... I wish I'd known about this. So this is in the common male culture. I'm so sorry that that must feel like a hopeless position for you to be in, to know that literally you were, you were just in the house. Uh, how, how did actually, let me stick with him and then come back to what maybe some, some conversations we can have about people who find themselves in the same situation you are in, or you were in, uh, was that the day of his passing? No, no. Okay. No, that was um no, I mean that was many, many years before oh, before wow. we lost him. Yeah. He um I think at that at that particular point he he felt he was a failure, I think, and that's one of the things that I don't think is discussed around marriages ending and um, you know, not being there for his son every day. I think he felt inherently that he'd failed. Um, and I think what happened that day, and he, and he said himself in some respects that day was a, was a cry for help. He wanted mm. to say, you know, he, he called the ambulance. He'd take, taken a lot of medication and he called the ambulance. So he didn't, I think he'd done something instinctively and then regretted it kind of in, almost instantly, um, yeah. which was really fortunate. Um, but he called the ambulance that day. Okay. But I just think for him, he felt helpless, hopeless, mm. um, and and that he'd failed because what he'd hoped would be his life wasn't wasn't going to be his life, and he didn't know what to do with that. Mm. God, that hurts. <sighs> we don't teach humans in the West how to grieve, and we don't teach men. It, if a guy's dog dies, it's like, bro, 
go spend a week crying. We got you. Everything's going to be okay. We love you. And that's it. Other than that, we're like, yeah, cool. Sorry that happened. Here's a punch on the arm and a clap on the back. Go get drunk. Go fuck a couple women and you'll be fine. And we really don't have an understanding that grieving needs to happen all over the place. It needs, you know, mm. it, your brother needed to grieve the difference between the life he was living and the life he thought he was going to be living. And that's one of the biggest things I think people miss grieving no matter what they're going through. Even right now with COVID, with, you know, uh, I'm we're grieving the loss of a business. We're grieving the loss of possibility. We're grieving the idea of safety. Um can you share a little bit more about what happened from over the next couple of years? And I'm re- the reason yeah. I such specific questions is my goal for this podcast is for people who are in your position a couple of years ago to hear this and go, oh, wow, okay, I have a brother, I have a friend, I have a son, I have a husband, I have my, and not just men, or men listening to this being like, okay, my wife, my partner. Uh, so I, the reason I'm asking for so much information is I want people to to recognize their own situation in yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's, just to briefly mention, that's what I've tried to do with writing my story is because as somebody that's lost somebody through addiction, you feel an awful lot of guilt. You feel um, shame. And what I wanted to do and, and what I want to do is help anyone in my situation um, and anybody that is dealing with addiction themselves to understand, first and foremost, that, that sit on the outside, you, you can't fix somebody. And, and that's a very hard lesson to, to have to um, learn. And secondly, that no one should ever feel shame for struggling with addiction and that it's complicated and yeah. I guess in hindsight I wish I wish I'd have known how I wish I'd have known then what I know now and understood it better um but in answer to your question following that period um <laughs> the 10 years of his sort of the last 10 years of his life was so up and down my brother um was really fanatically into exercise and going to the gym and really taking care of himself and there would be periods where he was you know incredibly focused on he'd almost swap one addiction for another so he'd be focused on staying healthy a really good lifestyle and he'd be in a good place mentally but it didn't take much for him to to trigger a kind of um relapse into drugs in some way and it could be that he had an overdue bill or it could be he had a really dramatic argument with somebody's ex or something work related so it was it could kind of didn't matter anything that he found really stressful would be my go-to would be to go back to drowning out the world shutting everything off Mm -hmm. um and just shutting the world out in a sense um he went through a period like that for probably about five years and then when he approached his 40th birthday um I think I don't know if it was just the milestone of him turning 40 a relationship with a girlfriend had ended about eight months before I don't think that it'd come to a kind of natural end 
but around 40 he was single he was living back with my parents with his son um just out of necessity really and I think everything felt like what am I doing with my life where am I going Mm -hmm. and at that point he began taking harder drugs so he'd taken a mixture of prescription drugs and um kind of recreational drugs for a while but around his 40th birthday he started taking heroin Mm. and um we didn't know at the time we celebrated his birthday with him and he seemed a bit erratic and um just not himself but we didn't know um but on the I think it was the 27th of December that year um he'd been asking me for money up until Christmas which I'd refused um but on the 20th of December 27th of December um he sent me a message and said I've been taking heroin and I need your help and that was the beginning of the end really I hope you're enjoying this conversation folks even though it's hard and so I want to speak to the men now we're talking about a man who struggled and we're talking about a man who struggled alone a lot and so I want to invite you guys into the uncivilized nation into my private men's group and membership group where guys get to speak about their feelings they get to speak about the things that are both hurting them and the celebrations that they may not be able to share elsewhere. So if this is you, or if this is a man you know, please check out www.manuncivilized.com forward slash the nation. You are not alone, and you do not have to go it alone. So please, if you're interested, come check us out. All right, back to Allison. If you're open to it, how did you feel getting that message? What was going through your body? Devastated. Yeah. Devastated because heroin feel when when you love someone who struggles with drugs, you always feel you can pull them back. Mm. And there's just something about that word that frightens you to death because you feel that everything that you hear about it is that you take it once and you'll never you'll never be able to come back from that. Now the reality for him was Actually, he did come back from it quite quite a number of times. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it was just absolutely devastating. We we my my instinct was I'm going to lose my brother, and sadly it took five years. But sadly, I did. Wow! Thank you so much for sharing so openly about this. Can you tell us about the end of his life and? And what led to, is there anything that sparked it? Or is there anything, any signs that you you now in hindsight can see? Or was it just you woke up to a phone call? Uh, yeah, it was just that. I mean, from, from that period where I initially found out, um, he, he went through a period where he got completely clean. We, we, we supported him. He, he got completely clean. He was amazing for about a year. Mm-hmm. And then... After that period, um, he probably every six months or so um, would relapse quite significantly. Um, The last year of his life, he was in such a good place from our perspective. He he wasn't using heroin. He was quite open about that. He talked very openly, particularly to me, about when he was and wasn't using. Mm -hmm. He was 
had a great relationship with his son. His son was 15 at the time that he died. They go to the gym together all the time. Really, really close bond. He had a relationship. He was really happy in his relationship. But still the same things, any any little trigger, any little bit of stress led him. You know, he'd call me and he'd talk about something that to most people would be a minor event. Um, but he would talk to me about it because he would worry that that would trigger something in him. And he was he was very self-aware in that respect. He knew what his triggers were and he always wanted to talk about them because he didn't want to be triggered. Mm. Um, but his ultimate death, he um, was due to have a operation on his knee on the Tuesday before he died, uh, the Tuesday after he died. And he would have been off work for six weeks, which we feel gave him in his mind an opportunity to use because he could take something and then he knew he didn't, he wasn't going to be accountable for anybody because he'd be off work because of this operation. Yeah. Um, he went out on a Sunday with his girlfriend. They had a few drinks um, he told her at the end of the evening he wanted to get some cocaine. She argued with him about that and um, he kind of stormed off and she went home. And then the next thing um, anybody knew, my sister had a knock on the door from the police to say he'd been found dead. Wow, 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 wow. Our demons live so close, right? They're so close. No matter how much progress we make, it feels like they're just right outside the door. Uh, I'm so sorry for the loss to your family and to his son and, and to everybody. When this happened, did you, after obviously a period of grieving, how did the idea for the book enter you or, or begin to percolate in your mind? I... I I never thought, I never consciously thought I was going to write a book. Mm -hmm. I, my, my initial reaction to his death, because I was his go-to person, um, he relied on me a lot for kind of emotional support. Um, I, I found it really, really hard to accept from the very first moment that I hadn't been able to fix him. Because I'd felt my responsibility always was to sort things out for him. And writing for me just became a way of instinctively kind of documenting what had happened. I wanted to, if I, if I kind of wrote it down, I could process what was happening. And um, I'd actually sat down to write his eulogy yeah. uh, because I'd always kind of written in the past. It, it was natural that I would do that and and I couldn't I couldn't find any words to put down on paper to to write it and instead I ended up writing a letter to him myself and it surprised me that like the emotion that came from that because I'd not really thought that actually what I was most upset about was that I'd not been able to fix him mm. and that kind of spilled onto this page and then from there, it was it was just writing everything that had happened. But then every time I wrote something about something that had happened in the present, my mind was taking me back to our past and, you know, 
kind of his downfall and what had happened and constantly flitting between the two of this is where we are now and this this is the grief we're feeling and then how did we get there and sort of working through our lives together in a way so the book just became my thoughts around where we are now how we got there and trying to kind of understand it all and as time went on I was sharing it with friends and with family who just said you need to do something with this because actually you know writing this story from the heart is is something that you need to share um the other thing that the critical thing actually that happened said is on the Wednesday before my brother died he spoke to me our last conversation and he was telling me that he wanted to become a counsellor and he wanted to help people and despite the fact that he was still using a lot of prescription drugs because he was not using heroin at that time he considered himself clean and said he wanted to help people and would I look into it for him because that's what he always asked me you know whether it was how to pay a bill or to research something I was always the go-to to to look into it so he said would I look into how he could become a counsellor and as my writing kind of began to take shape um it was a friend of mine Kathy actually put me in touch with you um she said this is your way of fulfilling his legacy and allowing him to to help other people and that kind of drove me on to the name of the book but also to to make sure that I did something that was going to help and benefit other people yeah what a beautiful gift you've given you know out of tragedy I, I had a call with all the guys I have a membership group called the uncivilized nation and we had a call last Thursday uh, about one of my tenets of an ethos that I wrote for the uncivilized is that uh, your greatest gifts go in the gar- grow in the gardens of your wounds or the garden of your wounds. And I told the guys my story, my books, this movement, everything that you're a part of was born out of pain and born out of tragedy. And tragedy and pain seem relatively unavoidable in the human experience. And yet, this is taking a shit sandwich and turning it into, you know, something beautiful that will save lives and help lives. So, so God bless you for that. Did you feel inspired at the time or was this more of, I'm curious of just the, the drive behind this, was it like a divine inspiration or your brother's inspiration coming through you? Or was this a way for you to stay sane? Can you talk a little bit about, what that process was like and what was going on for you behind the scenes? Yeah, I think, I think it was, I I think deep down, um, it is really hard to accept that I didn't fail him. So deep down, I guess my driver is, how how can I make this right for you? How can I, how can I show that I loved you Mm. enough to, it's about him 100% I know deep down that's why I'm obviously emotional um I think he it was it was to make something good come out of something so terrible and I I completely believe in what you said somebody sent me a a beautiful quote and I, I can't 
remember it all now, but it was essentially, you know, something tragic can lock the kind of treasure chest within you. And um, I've got it in the front of my book. I just can't remember the exact words, but it was, I really felt like this has been horrific, but actually it's got me to write something that I'm incredibly proud of and that I do think is incredibly emotive and will allow his story to help other people. I'm convinced of that. And um, I didn't really ever feel I had a choice. I was kind of just driven to put words on a page and make it happen. Brilliant. Is your book, Alison, more for people who are in the midst of addiction and struggle themselves? Or is it really speaking to, I believe, the most voiceless community which is the bystanders, which is the family, which is the brothers, the sisters, the husbands, the wives, the kids of people in challenge who we don't really count them as, you know, the fallout or we don't count them in like, oh, this many people died. This many people are addicted. But yeah, there's a there's a team around those people who, who are addicted of other people who are suffering. Was your impetus more to speak to the addict or to speak to the supporting cast? I think it's the supporting cast. I, I think I, I'd not really intended it to be that way, but certainly the reaction that I've had is being um, from, actually, it's been from both sides, but more from people that feel they've got a better, under, better understanding of their loved ones. And really it's, it's to try and have an open conversation about, A, the fact that these people that we love are, truly incredible people that have um, complex problems and addictions that we need to understand better. So that's one part of it. But the other part is that it's hard to love somebody um, that you feel is self-destructing. And I've been really honest about the many, many, many times when I didn't like my brother and I didn't I didn't want to be around him and he frustrated me and he made me angry. And even to the point where I kind of mentally had to switch off from him because I felt that he drained all of my energy and I couldn't make it better. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted to be open about that. And I think that people's loved ones, I think we need to talk about that to say that it's hard because you beat yourself up so much if you lose them. And I'm sure I'm not comparing um, addiction in the same way to suicide, but I'm sure people who are bereaved by suicide feel what if I could have done this and what if I could have done that? And um, I think it's really, really hard. And it's those people, I guess, more than anybody I'd like to speak to because, um, because it is hard to love somebody who's got such big challenges. For sure. I I would put suicide and addiction in the exact same camp. I just extend the timeline, right? If someone's ODing, it's it's essentially on some level a suicide. Uh, They're just not doing it acutely. They're, They're spreading it out. Yet I think one of the things that doesn't get talked about openly is the outsourcing of suffering to the community around the addict or even mm. to the community around the person suffering, especially with addiction, it's the consequences get outsourced. And so much of the suffering gets outsourced. It's like, hey, I have the problem, but I need you to take care of it. And the supporting cast often, I think, has to do what you have, what you did. You have to. Otherwise, your life gets p- 
pulled into the drama storm of that addiction as well. And mm -hmm. therefore, you're going to experience the same consequences without doing the drugs or, or having the challenge. What, what would you, if you could speak directly to people who are in your situation, you know, sitting in that car after dropping the yogurt off and watching the ambulance go by, what, what would you say to them if you could? I'd say never give up. Yeah. Never, never stop trying. Never write them off. Never forget who they are. Um, yeah, just don't give up on them. But equally, don't beat yourself up yeah. because you find it hard. Because it's really, really hard to love somebody who you feel that many times doesn't love themselves. Yeah, I would say it's it's not a. I know impossible is a big word, but it's it's like you're put in an impossible situation. How do you love someone and actively watch them kill themselves? I'm mm -hmm. not sure that's that's I think that's significantly damaging to you. H have you had to do your own work? I know it's a little shift in the questioning. Have you had to do your own work to be okay in the world so that you don't end up with uh, a significant ch emotional challenge or even addictive challenge? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, talking, I, I've talked quite a lot in the book about um, I've got my own challenges with food. I, food is an addiction that I struggle with and, and I've not had a great relationship with food ever since I got postnatal depression when my um, twins were born nine years ago. So I've talked about that because my brother and I used to talk quite a lot about the same we had the same reactions to stress his was drugs mine was um not eating and looking after myself as well as I would like so I know I, I'm not what I've wanted to do in the book is just make clear I'm not saying addiction happens over here to people like this that actually it's complex and I think many many people would struggle with addiction and in lots of different ways um i i have to work on myself a lot because i think despite writing the book and despite feeling so um passionately that you cannot fix somebody else actually when you're talking about yourself that's a very hard thing to accept i'm not sure i've fully accepted that and i think that's part of my own grieving um so i'm I'm very aware that I need to work hard on myself. Yeah, I would venture to say we're all addicts. We're all addicted to something. Mm -hmm. And people who snub their nose and say like, well, people with heroin just need to have stronger willpower. I'm like, cool, go four days without a cup of coffee mm. and then get back to me. And And that's how I view it of like, yeah, we're all we're all getting through a very, I mean, the human experience is so laden with challenge. And the way, and this is a much larger conversation, the way culture is set up, the way society is set up, I don't believe we're meant to live the lives we often live in the way that we do. There's a reason I called my movement the uncivilized rather than the more civilized. Uh, and yet we're not taught like I still I always rail against the Pythagorean theorem. Remember that? Like A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Yeah. yeah. 
never fucking used that in my entire life ever. And yet no one in as a sophomore in high school sat me down and said, Hey, do you know what, um, do you know what being triggered means? Do you know what, do you know what pain is? Do you know what trauma does to you? Do you know what trauma does to people around you? Do you know how you cope with that? Do you know how you're already coping with that? I feel like you shouldn't get out of high school without at least a year of either therapy or knowledge around therapy. Yeah, definitely. That, that It's so true. Um, I couldn't agree more. I, I think we're just not equipped to yeah. deal with those things. And unfortunately, young men are less equipped than young women generally. For sure. It, it's just an additional challenge. Yeah, we are slowly shifting societally to a place of permission to even have struggle and not mm. just hear the like, well, man up. Or it's in the languaging, right? Like man up. Um, it, it is quite challenging. And, and when I first started speaking about men, there was two very distinct camps of women. One saying, how dare you not take on the female? How dare you not fight for us? Right. Men are the ones causing all the problems. How dare you not come on our side? And then the other camp was, thank you so much. I just lost my brother, my husband, my, my friend. I have a son who's in challenging. Somebody needs to speak to men. Were you right? You were writing this just unisex or like for, for everybody, though, correct? Even though it was. Yeah, your... absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What is your hope for this book? I'd hope I'd. I think for me, I hope it reaches people who most need to hear it. So I don't have any wild aspirations. I just, when I get messages from people to say, this has really helped me um, and helped me identify my own struggles or my own reactions to things, that 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 is what I intended for it. So yeah. You know, if it if it reaches somebody and it makes them see things differently and make some changes to their own mindset, then then I've done the job that I intended to do. You know, if it he it's about his story helping other people so that yeah. nobody else becomes bereaved in the way that we are. Um, you, you know, people can get the help that they need. I think one of the greatest gifts of writing is hearing you put words to things I didn't know how to say. And I imagine mm. a book like yours is going to do just that because there's so much silence around trauma, around loss, around death, around addiction. Uh, even you know, I remember being divorced, getting divorced and thinking this is the loneliest process. I have to go online to seek out people who will talk to me honestly about what it's like to be divorced. And it feels like for people who have lost loved ones, I don't know if there's a community for you or if there's a way to get support locally or, or whatnot. Alison, if, if you could go back to the you, you know, three years ago, four years ago, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? I wish that I wish that I knew that we couldn't save him and that what we needed to do to support him was to help him save himself, if that makes sense. I think he leaned on people a lot and therefore you always felt you needed to fix him and actually what we needed to instill in him was the strength to... Mm 
to help himself more. So I, I wish that and I wish I wish that some of the one of the things that I've talked about a lot in the book is the shame that comes with loving an addict. Mm. And I've been very open, even so much as I'm a director, I work at um, a university and I've got quite a high profile job. And I really debated whether I need, I would tell people I worked with whether my brother had just died from heroin overdose. Uh. And I felt that it would be really um, hypocritical of me and wrong of me to lie about that. And so I talk about that now quite openly and I'm really happy to share that. And I'm not ashamed in any way, shape or form about the way that he died and his struggles. Yeah. But I wouldn't have been able to say that three years ago. And I wish I, I wish I was. Mm. So I wish I could turn back time and, and talk openly about drug addiction and the fact that it isn't something that you should be ashamed of or look down on people for because it is more complicated than most people know. And I think we need to be having more open conversations about it. Wow. I would never even have considered that. So you feared for your position at work if people found out that your brother had died of addiction, from addiction? Not not for my position, I guess, just the perception of, I think, the... The perception, I guess, of me and my family, but but also the negative perception that I thought people might have of him mm-hmm. because I loved him so much and I didn't want people to almost write him off because they hear about the way that he died because the way that he died didn't define who he was. Right. Um, and there's, um, I don't know, it just feels like something, a dirty little secret kind of. Yeah. Thing and I just felt really strongly we all did as a family there was nothing you know we'd hid his problems for a long time we weren't going to hide them and shy away from them we wanted to be open about that and and proud of, of who he was and and how how hard he tried that's beautiful I never would have even considered that for people who were listening to this and saying okay I, I, I hear her. She, I'm, I'm in that same situation. How do they get a hold of the book? And are you open to people reaching out to you? Do you hang out on social media? Do you have a place where, where you're communicating with people? Or is this more private for you? No, it's not private. I mean, I'm, I'm really keen to share the stories as much as I can. Um, I've published the book. It's available on Amazon and available on a number of other uh, websites and stuff. So you just need to Google it. I'm on social media. I use Twitter and Instagram, all Alison Kerwin. And I've got a couple of web pages I've set up for the council of the book, the book itself. So I'm really keen just to talk to people about it. Obviously, it's really raw and it's um, very personal, but, but I put the book out there because... I want to have the conversations and, you know, I desperately want our story to help other people and more than happy to talk to people about that. Beautiful. I really appreciate that. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question that's heavily loaded that I think books are like tattoos. And once you've done one, there's another one coming right around the corner. Uh, Do you have plans to write another book now that you're a writer? 
Yes, no, no, right. <laughs> um, I do actually. I began writing two other books. Oh, I know, but it kind of unlocked something in me. And, and that's why I wish I could remember that quote, because actually I, um, I paused for a little while hmm. when I was writing this book, because very tragically and sadly, I also lost my dad. Oh, wow. And I, I just, I, I, I just had to kind of pause for a while, sure. and I ended up writing um, some fiction, a, a story that had been percolating in my head for a while. But I've also, and I've always wanted to do this. My son has anxiety, mm-hmm. um, and I wanted to write a children's story with the main character um, being a child who struggles with anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, but being the hero of the story. So. I'm tinkering about with both of those when I've got a bit of time, but not had an awful lot of time at the moment. But yeah, I think for me, this has certainly unlocked something in me where I, I want to I want to write more stories. Beautiful. I, I hope you write your ass off <laughs> and get as many of those stories out into the world as possible. Thank you so much for sharing what I, I know is truly a very uh, hard story to tell and a very raw story for you still. Uh, I will echo the idea that this is going to help people. And you have no idea of the ripple effect of who's going to listen to this and pass it to someone else and pass it to someone else who's going to buy your book. And that book will save their life. And you'll never, ever know. So on behalf of all of us, thank you so much for your time, your energy, and for sharing today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is Trevor Bohm signing off on another episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please give us a share, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you're interested in getting a hold of my book, Man Uncivilized, whether you're a man or a woman, please go to www.manuncivilized.com forward slash the book and get reading.